Amen. Well, I've been preaching through the Gospel of John, if you're visiting with us, and so I would invite all of us to turn to John chapter 8. Today we're going to finish this chapter that we've been in for a few weeks now. John chapter 8, and our text is going to be verses 48 through 59, the sort of climactic ending to this incredible chapter. John 8, 48 through 59. Let's begin by reading these verses together. Remember as we read, this is God's inspired and inerrant word. Beginning in verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Amen. That's God's holy word. There are many non-Christians who believe that Jesus existed, but they don't believe that he ever claimed to be God. They assume that he must have been a deeply moral man, a a profound thinker, a great teacher. But the idea that he was God, they think, must have been an invention of, of later Christians. Of course, most people who come to this conclusion do so without seriously considering the record of his life that we have in the New Testament. It just makes a sort of intuitive sense to them that No man who was as apparently good and wise as Jesus is would be so cringy, to use the teenager's term today, as to claim to be God. It should be acknowledged also that it's a very common thing in the church as well, even among evangelical Christians, to sort of sideline these types of lofty claims of Jesus to deity though not denying them, but to paint a picture of him instead, which is more down-to-earth, more relevant for us. So he's there when you need him. When life gets tough, he understands your pain and offers comfort. He knows you make a lot of mistakes, but he accepts you anyway. He wants to be your best friend. He's always willing to drop everything and help. And he has a lot of resources, so he can pretty much help you through Whatever you're going through and meet all your felt needs. It could be from finding a lost wallet to getting through a tough semester at school to 
helping you find a spouse or, or taking away your depression. And because these are the primary ways that many people think about Jesus, he is domesticated down in their minds to someone far different from the majestic and provocative figure that you actually find in the New Testament. Our goal as Christians must be to know Jesus as he truly is. And that requires a close examination of the Bible, especially the record of his life that we have in the New Testament, and a willingness to let that portrayal of Jesus shape our thinking rather than the sort of distorted portrayals of him that are available in popular books, songs, videos, podcasts, etc., If you do that, you will discover Jesus to be a far more mind-blowing person than he's often understood to be. And perhaps the most provocative thing that you will discover about him is that he clearly and repeatedly claimed to be God. Though without a hint of pride, or self-promotion. The passage that we've come to this morning in John's Gospel is one of the clearest, the most astounding examples of this fact. So let's look at it together so that we might know who Jesus truly is. But before jumping into this text, let's just remember where we are in the storyline of John's Gospel. I've said to you on many occasions that chapters 5 through 10 of this Gospel have often been called the festival cycle because they describe a number of instances in which Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the annual festivals or feasts. And every time he did so, Jesus clashed with the Jews and their hostility toward him grew. And at the same time, though, his identity and his mission were more and more fully revealed. So chapter 7, if we go back to the beginning of chapter 7, it opens up with Jesus going up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths this time. Often that feast is simply called Tabernacles. And the rest of chapter 7 all the way through chapter 9 Describe the things that happened during his time there on this occasion. The Jews in Jerusalem already wanted to kill him because at a previous feast, back in chapter 5, you remember, he had broken their Sabbath rules and made statements that indicated that he was the unique son of God who was equal with God the Father. So they believed he was guilty of Sabbath-breaking and blasphemy, both of which were capital offenses under the Old Covenant. So they already wanted to kill him when he came up for this Feast of Booths, and yet God prevented them from arresting Jesus when he showed up in Jerusalem, even when he stood up in the temple and began teaching the crowds. Now, in the course of his teaching in the temple, he had made a number of provocative claims about himself. You remember playing off of the symbolism of water and light that were involved with this feast of booths. Jesus had said that he would put living water into the hearts of anyone who would believe in him. And he said that he was the light of the world who would give life to whoever would follow him. 
And he also claimed that he was not of this world, but that he had come from God so that he could speak about God from firsthand experience. And then more recently in chapter 8, you remember that he had said that those who were truly his disciples would know the truth and the truth would set them free from their bondage to sin. Now, as we've seen so far in chapters 7 through 8, the Jews who were there listening to Jesus say these kinds of things, they responded differently uh, to it. Some believed in him. Others weren't sure. And still others, especially the Jewish leaders, rejected what he was saying and began opposing him with increasing vigor. Now, when we left off last time, You remember that Jesus had explained the rejection and opposition of these Jews to what he was saying by telling them that they were unable to accept his words because they were not of God, but were children of the devil. In other words, like the devil, they were corrupted in their nature and opposed to God and his truth. Now... As you can imagine, that assessment didn't go over very well with these Jews. After all, they prided themselves in being children of Abraham, who had received God's law. They were his old covenant people. So they are less than thrilled at being called children of the devil, who could not hear the words of God. Now this morning, we're going to hear in our text how this intense conversation ended between Jesus and the Jews in the temple. In one sense, the conversation got so ugly that it ended up with the Jews trying to kill Jesus on the spot. In another sense, however, the conversation that Jesus has with these Jews was beautiful in that it provided one of the most exalted claims that Jesus ever made about himself. So let's listen in now to what is said in this conversation. We pick up the story in verse 58, where it says, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now, as often happens when people get very offended or angry, the Jews responded to Jesus's assessment of them with a vicious personal attack. So by calling him a Samaritan, it seems that what they're doing is they're questioning, first of all, his ethnic purity. Think back to how they accused him of being born of sexual immorality earlier in the text. And they were questioning his religious orthodoxy. This is really the only time in the Gospels where this particular accusation is made of Jesus. But the accusation that comes next, that he was possessed by a demon, that he had a demon, was actually far more common in the New Testament. This is actually one of three times that Jesus was accused of having a demon just in John's gospel. Back in chapter 7, verse 20, the crowd had said to him, you have a demon, who is seeking to kill you? And later on in chapter 10, verse 20, we will see that others say of him, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? 
And then, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the other three Gospels, they all famously record the fact that the Jews accused Jesus of casting out demons by Beelzebul, by the power of Satan. In other words, those who rejected and opposed Jesus, think about it. They had to come up with a way of explaining the undeniable supernatural power that he was wielding, but not affirming the things that he's teaching. So if they are going to deny that his power came from God, there's really only one other option. They had to suggest that it came from Satan, and that's what they did. Now Jesus responded to this second more common accusation that he had a demon in verses 49 through 51. And there he said, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now in these verses, Jesus calmly denied that he had a demon and affirmed his unique filial relationship with God. God was his father. And as John put it back in the prologue to the book, he was God's only begotten son. Then, contrary to this suggestion that he was God's agent of, uh, he was a, an agent of God's enemies, that he had a demon, Jesus instead says that he was bringing honor to God through his life. As he had put it back in verse 29. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Now, of course, that claim that he was actually honoring his father, that had ominous implications for the Jews that he's talking to, right? Which Jesus actually goes on to point out. He says, and you dishonor me. So if Jesus was the unique Son of God whose obedient life brought honor to God the Father, well then by slandering Him as a demon-possessed Samaritan, these Jews were digging themselves into a deep hole before the God they claimed to worship. This is also a sobering reminder to all of us who are reading this book that despite what Some people think you cannot have God without Jesus. Your response to Jesus is a response to God. If you reject Jesus, you reject God. If you accept Jesus, you are accepting God. It is impossible to honor God while dishonoring his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus was eminently clear about this throughout his teaching, especially in John's gospel. Back in chapter 5, verse 23, you remember that he declared it was God's will, quote, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And he said that whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Later on in chapter 14, 6, he famously said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Again, later on, chapter 15, verse 23, whoever hates me hates my Father also. So, all true worship of God must come through His Son, Jesus Christ. 
He is the one mediator between God and man. The most important question facing every human being then is, what will you do with Jesus? In verse 50, Jesus clarified that in saying all this about himself, he's not motivated by sinful self-promotion. He's not worried about securing the honor and praise of men like them at all. See, Jesus knew that even though many people like these Jews would reject and scorn him in this world, yet God, his Father, had determined to glorify him through his obedient life, his atoning death, and his victorious resurrection. And that to him is all that mattered. I think of how he put it in verse 50. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. By the way, this too is a lesson for all of us. Jesus' attitude of disregarding the honor and praise of man in this world and caring only about the approval of God, his Father, well, that's an attitude which we as his followers ought to adopt as well by the power of the Spirit. It's this mindset, for instance, that we see reflected in the Apostle Paul when he said in 1 Corinthians 4, 3-5, through But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So men, if you care more about what your boss and your co-workers think of you than God, or, or women, if you care more about being judged negatively by the society around you than you do by God, young people, if you crave the approval of your peers more than the approval of God, your souls are in grave danger. You need to repent. You need to cry out to God for strength to stop seeking the glory which comes from man. And begin to seek the glory of God instead. Like Jesus. Because that is all that will truly matter in the end. Jesus followed this up. This solemn warning to these hostile Jews. With a message of good news. A message of good news to them. He's not against them. He says in verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you. If anyone keeps my word... He will never see death. Now that phrase, if anyone keeps my word, it draws our minds back to verse 31, where Jesus had said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you will abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. In other words, he's, it was a way of describing true disciples, people who had put their trust in him as Messiah and begun following him as Lord. If anyone does this, Jesus was saying here in verse 51, they will be delivered from death, that is, delivered from the alienation from God and eternal ruin and destruction 
which sin deserves. They will pass from death into eternal life. What Jesus doesn't explain here in that verse is, how is that possible? Well, it's only when you read to the end of the book and you find this Jesus hanging upon a cross, dying the death of a condemned criminal, despite his righteousness, crying out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's there that you discovered their dramatic answer. You remember how they railed against Jesus while he was hanging on the cross? They said, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Well, they spoke better than they knew, didn't they? Because it was in order to save others that he didn't save himself. The penalty for sin was death. So he took that penalty in our place. He was forsaken that we might be forgiven. He died to save us from death. That is, whoever will believe in him. As he so famously put it back in the third chapter of this verse, those well-known verses 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So if you're here this morning and you have not believed in Jesus for salvation from your sins, but you are persisting in a state of unbelief in order to go your own way in life, I would just urge you, hear the invitation of Jesus this morning. It still rings down the ages through the pages of Scripture. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And then turn, turn from your sin. Put your trust in him to save you from death. Begin following him as Lord. So how do the Jews respond to this declaration of good news in verse 51? Notice, instead of seeing grace and hope in it, they see devilish arrogance in it. We read their words, verses 52 to 53. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? See, the Jews here zeroed in on Jesus' claim to be able to save people from death, and they rightly see in it an astounding claim. After all, they point out the greatest men in history, men like Abraham and the prophets, eventually succumbed to death. Yet Jesus is here claiming to be able to keep his disciples from dying. Well, this would make Jesus greater than Abraham, greater than the prophets. It would make him greater than anyone else who has ever lived. Because even men like Enoch and Elijah, the only two in the Bible that we know of who escaped death themselves, even they couldn't keep others from dying. The question the Jews end with, you see, is in some ways appropriate. Indeed, it's at the heart of this text. They said to him, Who do you make yourself out to be? 
It seemed like he was claiming to be the greatest man who ever lived. And in their eyes, that just seems like a lie from Satan. So they said, now we know that you have a demon. The striking thing is that while Jesus, of course, did not accept their charge that he had a demon, yet he did not deny the charge that he was making himself out to be greater than Abraham and the prophets. First, you see, he clarifies his motive in verse 54. He says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. Now, once again, Jesus here wants to emphasize that he did not say these things to promote himself in the eyes of men. All that, all that could possibly get him was just temporary worldly glory, praise and honor and acclaim from other human beings. But that kind of glory is nothing. It's worthless in the end. Because John points out, 1 John 2, 17, the world is passing away along with all its desires. And yet Jesus was being glorified. He was being glorified by his Father. As he had said throughout the chapter, he had come from the Father. The Father had sent him into the world. He was accomplishing the will of the Father in his life. And it was his Father's will to bestow the highest honor upon him throughout it. His righteous life is part of this. His miracles and teaching are part of this. His growing number of disciples is all part of this. And it would all come to a climax in his death and resurrection. Ironically, that was the hour of his glory in which he would demonstrate the highest obedience to his father and his father would bestow upon him the highest honor. You remember how the Apostle Paul described it in Philippians 2? Though he was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And by the way, we can't help but stop and say, Paul's point in that passage, Jesus' point here, is that the path to true glory, which Jesus walked, provides an example for us. True honor comes from God alone, not this world, And he gives it not to those who seek to promote themselves in the eyes of men, but to those who, like Christ, humble themselves to serve others sacrificially. You remember how he so memorably put this to his 12 apostles. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, brothers and sisters, let us recognize that private ambition and conceit subtly pervade our lives. This is why we need 
the atonement that Christ provided in his death. But it's also why we need to, even now as Christians, examine our hearts and ask God to show us where in our lives we are being motivated by selfishness and pride so that we might be convicted of it and might repent by his power. After clarifying that he's not seeking his own glory, but that God is glorifying him, Jesus then pointed out that this was the very God they claimed to worship. So you see it there in verse 54. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. Once again, Jesus is warning these Jews that they could not claim to worship the God of the Bible and refuse to honor him. By refusing to give glory to Jesus, they were opposing God himself. And indeed, this was the case. They thought they knew God, but they didn't. It was Jesus. It wasn't them. It was Jesus who was in true fellowship with God and was doing his will. They were self-deceived. As he put it in verse 44, but you have not known him. I've known him. If I were to say that I did not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. What a sober reminder to us. It is possible to think that you know God when you really don't. You know, the people who should worry about this, please hear me on this. It's not those who have put their faith in Christ, who are in the church, who are sincerely loving Christ and striving to obey him, but they're failing in many ways and they're struggling with their assurance of salvation. Jesus, the scriptures, has words of comfort for you. The people who should be worried are those who, like these Jews, claim to know God, but are deliberately disobeying him. Those people who say they know and say they love Jesus, but insist on doing what they want in life, even if it goes against the clear teaching of God in Scripture. They should question their salvation. After all, this is the very point that Jesus makes at the end of his Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Finally, Jesus returned to address the main objection that the Jews had raised about his claim to be able to save others from death. And they pointed out that Abraham and the prophets had died. In order for Jesus to save others from death, he would have to be greater than Abraham. Is that what he's claiming? Verse 56, Jesus responds by saying this, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. (laughs) Whoa, that could not have been what the Jews expected him to say. I mean, their question, when they say, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? That was almost certainly a rhetorical question. It's like, surely you don't mean that. What Jew would claim to be greater than Abraham, the father of the whole nation? But Jesus didn't answer no. Instead, he implied that the answer was indeed yes. He was greater than Abraham because Abraham rejoiced to see his day. 
you know, it's, it's unclear exactly what event in Abraham's life Jesus is referring to here. Probably wasn't a specific event in Abraham's life, but probably his general experience as a believer. Abraham believed that God would keep his promises, and it gave him joy to believe that. And since the promises given to Abraham, we know, would find their ultimate fulfillment down the line in Jesus Christ, that's what Paul says in Galatians 3, Romans 4, there was a sense in which Abraham's joy came from anticipating Jesus' day by faith. This is essentially, isn't it, what the writer of Hebrews was getting at when he said of the earliest believers, men like Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar by faith. But just imagine how this claim of Jesus would have struck his Jewish hearers. They had basically said to him, surely, Jesus, you are not claiming to be greater than Abraham, are you? And he basically says, actually, Abraham joyfully anticipated my arrival. That is, as the Christ in whom the promises are fulfilled. So, yes, I am greater than Abraham. There's only two possible ways that you could respond to this if you're these Jews. You could gnash your teeth at them in anger at this point, Or you could laugh at him in disbelief. And it seems that they chose something more like the latter because it says in verse 57, so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, Jesus. Have you seen Abraham? As so often happens in the Gospel of John, by the way, these Jews didn't understand what Jesus was saying because they took his words too literally, right? They thought that Jesus was claiming to have met Abraham in the flesh, in the body, which they say, that's preposterous. Abraham died 2,000 years before Jesus was born. But of course, Jesus hadn't really been claiming to have met Abraham in the body in that way when he said what he did in verse 56. But notice, when the Jews suggested that he had met Abraham, There was a sense in which they spoke better than they knew. And so in verse 58, Jesus didn't correct their misunderstanding of his words. Instead, he took what they said and he ran with it even further. There we read, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, there are two aspects of that claim. First, he claimed to have existed before Abraham. The phrase, before Abraham was, it's interesting. It may be better translated by the New American Standard and the New International Version as before Abraham was born. Because that is at least one way the Greek could be translated. The idea, though, however, is before Abraham entered the world, Jesus is saying, I was already there before Abraham was. But as astonishing as that claim was, it didn't hold a candle to the second claim. You probably noticed the strange change. It comes across even in your English versions from past tense to present tense in the verse. Jesus didn't say what you would expect. Before Abraham was, I was. He said, before Abraham was, I am. 
present tense. Why did he do that? Well, pretty much everyone agrees about the answer here in terms of the scholarship. It's pretty obvious that he was alluding to Exodus 3.14 where God said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The Hebrew word that's translated there, I am, it becomes the root of the Hebrew name, Yahweh. It was, in essence, the personal name, the covenantal name that God ascribed to himself. And it meant, it indicated, I am, that as the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth, back in Genesis 1 and 2, He transcended space and time. He did not come into being. He simply is. I am. So when Jesus said to the Jews in verse 57, before Abraham was, I am, he was almost certainly taking the divine name, the divine title, I am, and applying it to himself. He may have already done that back in verses 24 and 28 of the chapter. I actually talked about it previously when we looked at those verses, but it is almost certain he did so here. He's basically calling himself Yahweh, the God revealed in the Old Testament, the one who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth, who transcended space and time in his divine nature because he made them. That's how Jesus could claim to exist before Abraham was. In short, he was claiming to be God. And this shouldn't surprise us if you're reading through the Gospel of John. John had already described Jesus this way in the opening verses of the book. You remember he calls him the Logos or the Word in English. And he says of Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Going back to the creation account and putting Jesus there. Later on in the book, we're going to see chapter 20, verse 29, the apostle Thomas is going to affirm the same thing. He, he calls the risen Jesus my Lord and my God. And of course, the Apostle Paul had said, we read it in Philippians 2, 6-7, through 7, that Jesus had existed in the form of God before also taking the form of man. Or Colossians 2, 9, Sam is going to preach through this, where Paul says of Jesus, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Wow. As astounding as it is, it is simply undeniable, according to the New Testament, that Jesus claimed to be the eternal God come down into the world as a man, the man, Jesus Christ, and his apostles who knew him best, who lived with him for multiple years and watched his life up close and personal said, yep. Now, just to clarify this, and you're going to have to bear with me for a second, because I think it's important that on occasion we say this. What we're talking about here has to be understood against the background of the Bible's broader teaching about what is called the Trinity. 
So if you read the Bible, you see on the one hand, it says there is only one God. But on the other hand, it also affirms that three persons are God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And those things aren't contradictory because of the distinction between being and person. There is only one being, God, that exists eternally in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each of whom fully possess the one divine nature. So to put it short, God is one in essence and three in persons. And this is why Christians describe God as Trinity. To emphasize his three in oneness. It may be mysterious, it is mysterious, but it is not irrational, it's not contradictory, and it is what the Bible teaches. And it pertains to what we're saying here about Jesus. We're not saying that, we are saying that the eternal divine person of the Son, the second person of the Trinity, united himself to a human nature in the womb of the Virgin Mary and was born into the world as a man. Jesus of Nazareth, so that the one person, Jesus, has two natures, divine and human. He's fully God and fully man. Two natures in one person. Christians call this the hypostatic union. And this is why the man, Jesus, could say in our text, before Abraham was I am, ascribing the divine name, I am, or Yahweh, to himself. Now, one of the reasons we know that Jesus was indeed making this provocative claim is because of the ways the Jews reacted to it in the next verse. There it says, so they picked up stones to throw at him. They understood exactly what Jesus was saying. And they considered it gross blasphemy. Indeed, they were so outraged, they immediately sought to execute him by stoning, which was the penalty for blasphemy under the Old Covenant. Leviticus 24, 16. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. But precisely because Jesus was indeed the God-man, He was in complete control of the situation. He would not allow them to take his life because he was going to lay it down of his own accord when the time was right. So John tells us, Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And that brings this extended interchange between Jesus and the Jews in the temple to an end. Although, as we're going to see next time, John was not done telling us about what Jesus did in Jerusalem during this Feast of Booths. There's more to come in chapter 9. Now, the main point of this text, of course, is revealed in this climactic ending here. John was pulling back the curtain, as it were, even further for us as readers to see more of the glory of Christ. In this text, he wants us to see primarily the full divinity of Jesus, that he was Yahweh in the flesh. Despite what the Jews thought, He could rightly say, before Abraham was, I am, ascribing the most sacred name of God to himself without committing blasphemy, because that's exactly who he was. And Christians, we have to, of course, 
believe this about Jesus. We have to take it into our souls so that we might relate to him accordingly. He must not be domesticated down in the minds and hearts of his people so that we think of him and relate to him in ways that are woefully disproportionate and inappropriate to his true greatness. And when we do take these truths into our minds, it will serve to enhance the glory of his incarnation and his death to think that the God described in Isaiah 40, who the prophet says holds the waters in the hollow of his hands, all the oceans and lakes and rivers of the world fit into the hollow of his hands and he measures off the span of the heavens with the span of his hand to think that this God entered into his own creation as a man to be mocked and scourged and crucified as a criminal at the hands of his own image bearers so that he might save those men and women who would believe in him. It should be a wonder to our souls. Who can fathom the love and grace demonstrated in these things? And you will only begin to fathom it when you recognize that the man Jesus, who identified himself to Mo- is the God who identified himself to Moses as I am. And be aware, believing in Jesus as the God-man, telling others about him, saying, yes, he was God in the flesh, that may very well evoke the same kind of outrage, rejection, which Jesus' words evoked from the Jews in this passage. But that shouldn't surprise us. Later on in the book, in his upper room discourse, Jesus is going to say, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Persecution for the sake of Christ, it's a sign that we belong to him. We're on the right side of history. So we have to accept it, and even with joy. And for those who might be here this morning, and you're not a Christian, you haven't believed in Jesus, this text faces you first with a question. Did Jesus actually say this? I mean, is this an accurate account of his words? Well, there are no other eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life than the four New Testament Gospels, although there are other so-called Gospels claiming to tell us about Jesus, but they weren't even written in the first century. They were written by people later on who never met Jesus. If you reject Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and what they say about Jesus, you can't really know much about Jesus at all. And you'd have to ask yourself, why would you reject their testimony about him? Other than the fact that the things they say about him are so astounding. Because otherwise, the four Gospels have all the marks of being historically credible. If you don't believe me, go home and read through them on your own. If you have an open mind, you'll see it for yourself. And given the fact that Jesus, more than any other human being in history, has changed the whole course of human history, is it really too much to expect that he might have said and done some pretty remarkable things? But if Jesus really did say, the words recorded in our text. If John is telling us the truth here, and he is, then unbeliever, you are faced with a dilemma. I mean, this man, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. 
either he was a madman and he did have a demon, as the Jews thought, because that was gross blasphemy. Or he was telling the truth and it wasn't blasphemy at all. And don't forget, friend, this claim here, it doesn't come in a vacuum. It comes within the context of a life of extraordinary righteousness and undeniable supernatural power. Even his enemies didn't deny that. They just said it must be coming from Satan. But if he was who he claimed to be, God come in the flesh, what does that mean for you, unbeliever? Would that not mean that to not believe in him, to refuse to believe in his words, to reject his sacrifice for sins would be to dishonor the one who is the God-man and would leave your soul in grave peril. So I just urge you to believe in him as the Son of God, as the Savior of the world, that you too might be saved from death and join the community of his followers who are promised eternal life with Him. Well, in conclusion, as Christians, we have to seek to know Jesus as He truly is. And in the face of so many watered-down and domesticated ideas about Jesus, this passage pulls back the curtain for us and shows us His divine majesty. May we all believe and respond to Him with Thomas saying, My Lord and my God. And truly knowing that, about Jesus, it will dramatically change your life. Let's pray together. And if the men who are going to be serving the Lord's Supper would come up. Our Father, we praise you. We praise you because you are the one true and living God along with the Son and the Spirit. We give you worship as the God revealed in the Bible the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who Himself is God in the flesh. We praise You because of who You are in the majesty, the perfections of Your nature as God, incomprehensibly great and perfect. And we praise You for Your wise and good plan of redemption to save a remnant of fallen sinners deserving of death, hell-bound through the incarnation and life and atoning death and resurrection of the God-man, our King and Savior. And as we come now to the Lord's table, which Jesus Himself established for us to observe regularly, we ask that You would use it to draw our hearts back to that cross work of Christ which is at the very center of our lives as believers strengthen our faith renew our covenantal bonds with you and we pray it in Jesus name Amen